Hi everyone, this is International Society of Hypertension Podcast. I'm Associate Professor Francine Marques from Monash University, Australia, and my co-host is Dr. Augusto Montesano from the University of Glasgow, Scotland. Today, we have the honor to interview Dr. Ernesto Schifrin, a physician-in-chief at the Jewish General Hospital and director of the Hypertension and Vascular Research Unit at the Lady Davis Institute. Ernesto is a distinguished James McGill professor and vice chair of the Department of Medicine at McGill University in Canada, Montreal, Canada. Dr. Chiffring has uh, authored more than 620 peer-reviewed papers and has had an enormous contribution to service, being a past president of the Canadian Hypertension Society and Hypertension Canada, past chair of the American Heart Association Calcium Hypertension, and a past president of the International Society of Hypertension. Dr. Schiffring has received many awards, including the 2021 ISH Franz Volhard Award and the 2021 Distinguished Scientist of the American Heart Association. But for us here today, we're celebrating his successful contributions in mentoring many successful hypertension scientists and early career researchers, which is the topic of our WeChat. So with that, I just wanted to start by saying thank you, Ernesto, for being here with us today. My pleasure. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you very much for inviting me. And just to like to get things started, uh, Ernesto, could you share with us a little bit of your story and how did you get involved in research and hypertension? So I grew up in Argentina uh, and uh, well, my father was a doctor and from Early on, I thought I wanted to be a doctor. And uh, so I graduated as a physician from the University of Buenos Aires and uh, did my residency training in internal medicine in the third department of medicine, which was based in the uh, Institute of Medical Investigation, as it was called, a place where there was a, uh, there were a, a number of, uh, uh, clinician scientists working in diverse fields. Many of them had been around uh, the Nobel Prize of Medicine, Bernard Ousey from Argentina, or uh, the Nobel Prize in Chemistry, Federico Leloire. Um, I had also become um, an instructor in the uh, second department of physiology, which was headed by Alberto Tacchini, one of the co-discoverers of angiotensin uh, together with Brown Menendez in Argentina. Uh, and uh, at the same time as the Cleveland Clinic group uh, discovered angiotensin, actually they called it hypertensin and uh, the Cleveland group called it angiotonin. And then they got together and they used half of each uh, of the names to come up with angiotensin, which is as we know it today. So I, um, I had great admiration for this uh, um, internist and um, who was interested in cardiovascular medicine and particularly in hypertension, uh, Alberto Agrest, who became my mentor. And he had trained uh, in the University of Michigan uh, and actually was involved in describing the hemodynamics of hypertension in Cushing's disease. 
Uh, and so I uh, uh, started doing research with him and he connected me with uh, Jacques Genet, um, who invited me over to uh, come to Canada, to Montreal, uh, to the Clinical Research Institute, uh, where I uh, immediately was enrolled in a PhD program at McGill University, uh, working on the renin angiotensin system. And so I spent several years doing my PhD. And eventually, uh, my wife, who's an endocrinologist, was uh, doing extra training uh, as well in Montreal uh, at McGill University, uh, the Children's Hospital. And uh, we decided to stay in Canada because we felt that it would be better for our kids and for our own careers. And so uh, I became involved in research in hypertension uh, already from the very beginning of my uh, uh, medical career. Uh, I remained a practicing physician, but dedicating 75% of my time to research. And as I tell uh, my uh, medical students and uh, residents and uh, recruits, I think that if you want to be successful in a research career, dedication and time, dedication of time is critical. If you don't dedicate enough time, you will never be competitive. And this of course is an extremely competitive field. At the same time, it's full of obstacles, but I cannot think of a more gratifying career. Um, you get to meet the most interesting people like yourselves, uh, the most um, intelligent people in the world, you can brainstorm, you get stimulated uh, to a degree that I don't think compares to, uh, or compares to very few others. And so for me, uh, uh, getting into research at the same time that I was able to carry on my medical practice uh, was, uh, the dream of my life. And looking back on, I don't dare say, but uh, many years, I won't put a number, of um, research and clinical practice and teaching, I don't think I could have made a better choice. Uh, you know, this is the kind of thing that you can say retrospectively, not that I didn't have ups and downs, I had papers rejected, grants rejected, um, but I was able, fortunately, to overcome these humps on the road. I had wonderful mentorship. My uh, mentor in Argentina that led me to a career in hypertension, uh, Takini, Dr. Takini or Professor Takini, the chair of physiology who uh, opened uh, my um, mind to the renin angiotensin system, uh, being in contact with the people who discovered angiotensin. And then in, in the institution where I, I trained, the people who discovered brain renin, uh, Finkelman and Namod, at the same time that Detlef Ganten discovered 
Brain Renin in Montreal in the Institute where I was to come to. A lot of coincidences on the way. Uh, all of them uh, were incredibly stimulating. And in Montreal, the mentorship of Jacques Genet, who really pointed the way uh, for my career, uh, trying to, uh, to deliver the best care possible, trying to uh, teach as excellently as I could and trying to do uh, world-class research and cutting-edge research. He also taught me something, which was you first show somebody how to do something, then you watch as they do it, and then you get out of the way. And I have tried to do that, imperfectly, of course, but I think that that kind of epitomizes what mentorship is for me. Showing the way, supporting, encouraging, helping out in the, uh, to deal with the obstacles that life and science show, uh, throw on your way, and, uh, and then getting out of the way and letting people fly with their own wings. Um, I think that is, is fundamental uh, because until people fly with their own wings, they, they don't really demonstrate their ability, their value. And so you have to give them the opportunity. It doesn't always happen, but I hope that I have done it. I'm not sure I have, but I hope I have because I, I really do believe that that is one of the clues to uh, successful mentorship. And there's no doubt that mentorship is fundamental. It is a tough life out there for early career investigators, choosing what to dedicate themselves to, choosing how to distribute their time, choosing when to go, for uh, positions or, um, or uh, funding, personal or operating. And one has to help them choose when it is right to do each of these activities and how and when to get involved in any of the other opportunities that academic life offers. Um, I, I teach a, a course in our um, uh, in one of the experimental uh, medicine courses for clinical investigators on um, academic medicine uh, and promotion and academic life. And this is, this is one of the things I, I tell them to find a mentor because for me, it's been critical. Wherever I am today, I owe to my mentors. And as I mentioned, I, I, I was lucky to have three. Uh, the th three of them were extraordinary individuals. And uh, I owe that, uh, my successes to them, but also I have to say, and I like to say this, to my family, 
I grew up surrounded by books. Uh, I think I mentioned my father was a physician, a pulmonary specialist, and my mother uh, was a chair in the English department in the university. And uh, so we were exposed constantly to all kinds of inputs. And so it looked like the world was the stage to play in. And that has been another uh, of my mantras uh, that across the world, you find extraordinary people. And I've traveled a lot. And whether it's clinicians, scientists, teachers, you are, or at least I am, always surprised by the extraordinary questions that people ask, even if they're not versed in the science that you're presenting. And sometimes it's those questions, you know, innocent questions uh, born from naivete that uh, uh, open up new vistas into a, a scientific problem. And I always come back from uh, trips where I've exchanged with uh, other academics, uh, whether it's a Congress or going to give a lecture, full of ideas. And I think that uh, uh, it's a shame that for the last two years, we've had to uh, uh, suffer being deprived of the in-person contact. Um, I have kept away from everyone behind a mask and at two meters distance, but I'm going back into the fray and I will be going for my first uh, in-person uh, meeting in June uh, in Europe. And uh, I've, I've uh, regretted not having the opportunity you know, for me, the Council of Hypertension, the International Society of Hypertension taking place uh, soon in Japan. I hope to be there, have to give a lecture there. So uh, I plan to go. And uh, so I really enjoy not only the science that we learn about, but the personal interactions, the brainstorming, uh, the chat in the corridors that also sometimes opens up new areas of research just from a few words that you've heard that uh, somehow stimulate you to think. Uh, you know, uh, we all uh, believe very much in serendipity and uh, one thing leads to another and you end up in a new field. And I have multiple examples of that that um, I could uh, come up with. No, thank you. That was uh, uh, really lovely and very uh, inspirational as well to hear about your career path and um, all the historical components as well. I really enjoyed that. And I couldn't agree more about our role as uh, mentors uh, and the importance of mentors. And I look forward to some other uh, questions that we have for you today. Um, I was uh, wondering if you can comment on your contribution to service you clearly have had an enormous role in several uh, institutions um, in Canada, in the uh, US, as well as for the International Society. And I was hoping you could tell us like, what was your motivation uh, to take those major roles that are extremely time consuming? Uh, well, uh, somehow they sort of uh, 
appeared on my way, shall I say. Um, I didn't seek them. Uh, my interactions with colleagues uh, generated invitations to participate. Um, I, uh, at the Council on Hypertension, I, uh, there was a whole circle of people I interacted with. And at some point I was asked whether I would uh, accept to be a candidate. So I participated in the first democratic election uh, for a chair of the Council on Hypertension, and I was the first elected chair of the Council. Uh, I don't know why that happened, but uh, be it as it may, with uh, the uh, International Society of Hypertension uh, at uh, a Japan meeting around 2006, uh, I was invited to join as a member uh, uh, ad hoc, the executive, and eventually, I, I was uh, uh, elected as, as president of the International Society of Hypertension. And I felt that uh, I had received so much from colleagues that I had to return some of what I had received. And I felt that participating in either the local, national, or international organizations, it was my opportunity to somehow return so much that I had benefited from, uh, from colleagues uh, across the world, both locally and across Canada, across North America and internationally. And so I felt that participating in these organizations, I was contributing somehow to uh, what is eventually our goal, that is to improve outcomes for patients, not only in our country, but across the world. And uh, uh, that was one of the reasons why I, uh, at some point, uh, thought that we should have, for the International Society of Hypertension, during my presidency, a, um, uh, recommendations for the treatment of hypertension that would be really simple and, uh, and applicable anywhere in the world. And uh, uh, together with uh, other colleagues, we were able to come up with something in the year 2014. Um, uh, and I feel that that was a contribution to improve outcomes. There are many other guidelines. There have been since uh, probably better guidelines from the International Society of Hypertension. But at that time, it was, I felt, my little drop in, in the bucket that perhaps made it overflow and uh, help outcomes, especially in uh, low and middle income countries. Uh, I felt always that the International Society of Hypertension had a duty of uh, extending our knowledge on mechanisms uh, and on management of hypertension uh, globally, um, because we were so privileged to be able to uh, do research, uh, to uh, treat hypertension successfully, in Canada, we've been lucky that we've been able to implement treatment of hypertension with uh, 
quite uh, a lot of success and achieve uh, very high levels of uh, control. And I wish that we were able to extend this across the world. Yeah. So, so participating in these organizations, that is what I felt uh, my contribution could be, to uh, insist on rigor, to uh, advance on mechanism, and to improve uh, management and hopefully outcomes for our patients. Now that's wonderful, and, and I like that you mentioned it's all about giving back because uh, you're right, we've received so much, especially as in a, uh, now transitioning into mid-career research, we receive so much from uh, the societies that it's really important that we also give it back. Thank you. Yeah, it's always good to pay it forward, right? So yeah. it's like it's the key like uh, of your success, I guess. Uh, so. Ernesto, um, now changing uh, gears like to, uh, to the mentorship part of our interview. And that's like uh, the interesting question that we get like different answers all the time and the answers are so rich, like, well, the words are so rich. So if you need to define your uh, mentorship experience in one word, uh, word, which word would you use? One word, that's, uh, <laughs> it's difficult. Uh, let me see. Um, I would say it is, it is gratifying. One of the most gratifying things for me has been to see uh, uh, people who I have mentored go further than myself. Uh, I don't think I can think of anything more gratifying than to see success in the people that you have mentored and that uh, perhaps have gone through your lab that uh, you have somehow had some influence on. Um, and you hope that the influence has been good. And uh, if you see them succeed in your or another field, it is extraordinarily gratifying. I cannot think of much that is more gratifying scientifically than seeing that kind of success, the success of your mentees. Uh, uh, because at least a little, little bit has come from you. But of course, a lot has come from their fire in their bellies because without the sacred fire, nothing happens. And so, it's also a question of having the vision, the sense, I don't know uh, um, how to put it, but to uh, be able to direct people in the right direction. There are some who may not succeed and you should orient them accordingly. And others where you see that success is written all over them and you should encourage them and try to direct them in the most successful and most efficient way possible so as to ensure that success. Because even if success is written all over you, success is never guaranteed, ever. So you really have to work for it. And so my mantra is work hard. Uh, at anything you're doing, work very hard. 
dedicate a lot of time. And I know that in today's world, we're talking a lot about well-being and we have to respect that. And we're talking a lot about balance in our lives and it's very difficult to achieve, uh, especially in a, in a scientific career in a very competitive world, but it can be achieved. Um, I, I enjoy music, I uh, am a skier, I uh, enjoy sports um, and I uh, enjoy art and uh, I enjoy reading books, literature, fiction um, and uh, uh, good books, uh, sometimes very thick books. <laughs> uh, and so I think that if you compartmentalize your activities and manage your time, that is critical, time management. I have a lot of functions and I'm very, very rigorous with my time management. And that is something that I would recommend to anybody who gets involved in this kind of activity. Be sure to manage your time appropriately. And sometimes it's very difficult to do because there are many, uh, demands that are pulling at you, uh, whether you're a, a PhD scientist or a clinician scientist, there are tons of things that pull you one way or another. And that's why it's difficult sometimes to get involved in, in, in large organizations that may take too much of your time and distract you from your uh, research and your uh, postdocs and your students, your graduate students and so on. But uh, uh, that's why time management is, is critical and uh, you can't succeed unless you manage your time uh, appropriately. And also learn something that I have never learned, but I recommend strongly, learn to say no. I don't know it, I don't know how you do it, but it has to be done. It is critical for success. Learn to say no when something is less important than uh, other activities that you want to remain involved in. No, uh, that, that's one of my problems. Yeah, no, I, I still don't know how to say no. <laughs> there you go. I learned how to say maybe, but not a few no. <laughs> that gives you time at least. Yeah, no? Say maybe, yeah. you have time to think think of a reason to say no. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and Nesto, was there any specific time in your career that you realized you needed a mentor or did the relationships just happen uh, naturally? Yes, I think that, um, you know, my, my mentorship was in large measure uh, having role models. You know, there's a difference perhaps between being a role model and being a mentor. I did have role models. Uh, some of those role models turned into mentors. And um, so, uh, let's say, I, I think always in terms of three individuals, one was a role model. Uh, the second one turned into a mentor. The third one, I would say, was fully a, a mentor um, and influenced my career in a major, major way. I eventually succeeded this person 
um, in one of my previous jobs. Um, and um, so I, and I succeeded him uh, in a way uh, 25 years later as chair of the Hypertension Council. Um, uh, and so this person really showed me the way. Uh, and I had a, almost a father-son relationship with him. Oh, uh, it was a relationship of, uh, on the one hand, huge admiration for an individual that was highly admired in our milieu here in Quebec and across Canada. Uh, but at the same time, there developed uh, a certain trust and uh, a certain friendship and collaboration even that, uh, that in a way uh, was not in agreement with uh, his stage of life and eminence and mine. But that I felt happened and I always looked up to him and I still, uh, when I get an award, I, I will always mention him as my mentor and uh, who, who guided consciously or unconsciously uh, my, my career, my trajectory uh, in science and in medicine. Now, this is beautiful. Thank you for sharing that with us. And Ernesto, like when you think about your mentoring style, like how you define, like what's your uh, mentoring style? I, I don't think I can say I have a style. It's just uh, natural interaction. I, I uh, try to uh, encourage, you know, postdocs or, or uh, uh, graduate students in the direction that I think they can go. But of course, it depends on them. Um, so you can point the way, you can underline uh, areas where they are uh, doing well and areas that they have to improve upon. But eventually, it's in their hands. So I believe in autonomy. I believe in respect. I believe that uh, uh, you can push a little, but you should not push too much. You can show the way, but if you see that the person is not responding, you should try to find out why and what can be done about it and what would be the best way for that person. You can be mistaken about an individual, and sometimes we are. And so uh, you don't want people to waste their time. You don't want uh, uh, individuals to, to feel that uh, they're, they're not going to succeed. And so if you note that they might not, you might want to steer them in another direction. And uh, even if that, uh, means that uh, there will be extra time spent in their training or whatever. So it's important to, to be very aware 
of uh, the capability, the capacity, the ability uh, of individuals and uh, to, to supervise their progress and uh, to be honest and transparent. I think that honesty in our human relations is just like honesty in science. You have to be transparent, you have to be gentle, you have to be diplomatic, you have to be sure that you don't injure, you have to respect, I said that before, uh, and all of that is critical. I think that uh, uh, I, I start from the point that we're all equal, the postdocs, the graduate students, and myself, and my colleagues, we're all equals. We're all humans. We can all make mistakes. Uh, we can all have a bad day. Um, we're all essentially equal. And that to me is the basis for respect. And uh, if you respect, you're not going to uh, do wrong on anyone. And that's very important to try to make sure that whatever you uh, do uh, to influence somebody, uh, you have to do it uh, thinking and hoping that it will improve the career of that individual and it will improve the enjoyment of science and life for that individual. And that if you think that uh, that will not be the case, you should be honest. And sometimes that is very difficult, being honest to people uh, and uh, uh, saying things that may be difficult to receive. And then it has to be done very gently and respectfully and offering an alternative. That's very important always to offer alternatives and to make them uh, look just as attractive and important as whatever misguided road an individual may be uh, following. And I've seen people fail in their uh, PhD uh, studies and uh, have to accept that perhaps, uh, well, they weren't at the PhD level, they had to remain at the master's level. Very difficult, but that can happen, uh, that people uh, uh, measure their own abilities uh, in a way that is uh, uh, not really, uh, uh, appropriate to their actual ability or or interest. Sometimes it's a question of just lack of lack of interest, and I've seen that also. So um, honesty, rigor, uh, respect are critical aspects of uh, human relations, including with your mentees and uh, trainees in general. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And Ernesto, um, and do you have any advice for uh, trainees looking for a new place, uh, a new lab or a new group to join on what makes a good environment and what they should be looking for? So I think it's important to uh, gauge somehow how fertile the ground is, uh, how... Uh, what the possibilities of growth are, um, to what degree mentorship will be available, 
uh, we've already agreed that mentorship is critical. Um, to what degree uh, people will be allowed to work autonomously, uh, but at the same time be guided uh, and not allowed to, to waste their efforts. Uh, to what degree something is important that can be uh, uh, studied or researched in, in, in the particular place that uh, a scientist is, is looking at. And what the essentially the possibilities of growth and promotion and success. Uh, of course, one can always be uh, mistaken and, and judge uh, uh, possibilities in a, in a uh, lab or, or a department in the university uh, and not correctly and only realize once you're there. But uh, one should be careful and investigate to make sure that one's goals can be met. And so it's important to have one's goals clear in one's mind. Uh, not easy uh, to uh, sit down and think, what do I want? Where do I want to get? What are the goals that I'm after? Um, uh, so if one has clarity around these elements, then searching for the right place at the right time may be easier. Um, but it's a, it's a hard um, nut to crack, actually. Uh, you don't, uh, you know, people sometimes move from one place to another searching uh, for the right place. And hopefully, eventually, they find it. Sometimes they find it from the very beginning. And um, I came to Montreal. I came to the Clinical Research Institute in the University of Montreal, and uh, I stayed there for 30 years. And then I moved to McGill and the Jewish General Hospital, and I've been there 17 years. Uh, I was lucky that I went to places that, where I was welcomed and where I could succeed in achieving the goals that I had set for myself. Uh, it doesn't always happen. And one has to have the ability to stop, think, and say, this is not for me. I'm going somewhere else and look for the right place and hopefully find the right place. So um, establish very clearly what your goals are. That will be very, very important in uh, feeling satisfied that you did the groundwork and that uh, you will be gratified uh, by uh, whatever you get back from the place you're you're looking for or looking at. No, thank you for saying and, that. I'm I'm a big advocate of identifying a professional mission and goals and values uh, as well. And uh, and I think that that's really important that they align with the workplace you choose. Thank you. And then so if you don't mind me adding like a, a question here, so. Because you uh, changed twice, right? So you moved from uh, Buenos Aires, from Argentina to Canada. And then you also experienced the change from the clinical setting to the basic science uh, setting. How did you deal with those changes? Because for a lot of people that listen to our podcast, those are things that are very overwhelming. And sometimes they worry about it. 
So if you could share with us like a little uh, wisdom that you learned from those two changes in your life, that would be great. Yeah, so as I mentioned at the very beginning, I had been exposed to people from other countries. Uh, elsewhere, my, my parents had studied uh, outside of Argentina. My mother had gone to England and then to the United States. I, I grew up thinking that I would go away for a year or two. Then in the institution that I trained, everybody went for two to five years, either to North America or to Europe. So for me, there was no doubt that I had to leave for a year, two, three. So I left for a year. And then I enjoyed the cold in Montreal and the snow and the ice. Uh, and, uh, and we stayed and stayed on and stayed on. So uh, was it difficult? Yes, I had two little kids. My wife was uh, also a doctor and doing her thing um, in another institution. It was hard, it was tough when I look back. But at the, at the time, it seemed like the thing to do. Uh, so uh, I was lucky that I had uh, been raised in, in English as well as Spanish, and that I had uh, gone to the Alliance Francaise and learned French. So uh, being in Montreal, in, in, and actually, since I knew French, when I had the choice between the Cleveland Clinic and uh, and Montreal, I said, well, I'll go a couple of years to Montreal and then I'll go to the Cleveland Clinic. And in fact, eventually I also got an invitation to go to the Cleveland Clinic years later, but I still remained in Montreal. And here I am still today, 45, exactly 45 years later. Um, uh, moving from clinical activity, well, while I was training, I did some basic research. So I had already done some basic research with experimental animals and so on. So that transition was not very difficult. Uh, I found it a little difficult not to practice medicine for a couple of years, but then I went back to clinical medicine. And so uh, I felt I had the best of all worlds. I was doing mechanistic studies, uh, and I was practicing medicine and I was teaching. Uh, and then I just, my career developed. I, I uh, had a lab. Uh, then I became the director of uh, the Medical Research Council of Canada uh, group on hypertension at the Clinical Research Institute. Um, and uh, then came invitations to become chief of medicine uh, in different parts of Canada and in the United States. And uh, for one or another reason, I, I never moved, including the Jewish General Hospital, many years before I eventually moved there. Um, and at one point, uh, I, I, uh, I accepted to become Chief of Medicine at the Jewish and Vice Chair of Medicine at McGill. Um, and moved my lab uh, to uh, the Lady Davis Institute at the Jewish General Hospital. Uh, that move uh, meant that I had to change uh, my abbreviations in my charts from French to English. 
Um, and uh, that was uh, probably the most difficult part. Um, I, um, yeah, it took some time to uh, uh, remember all the abbreviations that, or forget the ones that I had learned. Um, but um, it, it wasn't difficult and my career uh, changed a little bit in scope. Whereas the first 30 years at the Research Institute and Hotelier Hospital across the street, I was mostly doing research. In the last uh, few years, I suddenly had to deal with a healthcare system with a department that had many divisions, many people, many chiefs. And I had to deal with a lot of chiefs. Um, and uh, I also became involved with the healthcare system across the city. Uh, and eventually became actually the chair of the uh, committee of uh, chairs of departments of specialized medicine for the island of Montreal. So I became involved in the dealings with public health and with the Ministry of Health and so on and so forth. Uh, so it gave a completely new scope to my career, while at the same time I was busy with the mice and our transgenics and our knockouts uh, to try to uh, uh, understand uh, the mechanisms of hypertension and vascular disease. And when I think back, it was such joy to do all of this. It was many hours, a lot of reading, uh, a lot of talks, a lot of travel. I think I traveled more than Air Canada pilots. <laughs> um, uh, I once went to Australia for a day. Oh, wow. <laughs> and you know Where what that trip is like. <laughs> the Where time when we used to stop in Hawaii on the way uh, because there were no direct flights uh, wow. from Canada to Australia. Um, and yet, I, it was wonderful. Uh, I, I cannot... Uh, I think express the enjoyment that my career has brought to me. Uh, of course, number one, the research, the treading where the gods don't dare to tread at some cutting edge that uh, one believes is of course the, uh, going to reveal the, the mechanism. And of course, <laughs> you're always uh, disappointed a little bit but it's, it's uh, such a joy. Uh, and also the opportunity to interact with younger people who pick your brain and stimulate your brain, both in the clinic and uh, at the bench. And it's unique. And then dealing with the government and um, public health and, uh, and my chiefs uh, and uh, yet, and the CEO. Uh, and uh, it's wonderful for me as a clinician scientist, it is all I could have dreamed of. Now oh, that sounds and, uh, really, really lovely. And I hope uh, by, um 
by uh, the end of my career can look back and I can feel uh, as happy as you described because this uh, this is really lovely. Thank you. <laughs> and and as to, uh, in the last part of our interview, we like to discuss issues about diversity and inclusion as something that is quite uh, topical. And I was wondering if you can comment on what you think is the biggest uh, issue around diversity and inclusion and how you think we can change that in our field. Yeah, so uh, let's say that at McGill, we're very strong on EDI, on equity, diversity, and inclusiveness. I grew up in a, in a home where my mother was an overachiever. Uh, my wife was an overachiever. They were super moms and super successful professionals. One a, a professor, the other a physician and a full professor in, in her own field. And so I grew up and uh, developed a huge respect for the ability of women to succeed in the professional field. And I have encouraged and supported uh, women so that uh, they could have uh, equitable opportunities, respectful, of the different roles that some play. Uh, my wife, despite her, how busy she was at the hospital, she would go to watch our kids uh, play their games. And, and I couldn't because I didn't find the time. So I know how uh, men and women somehow seem to sometimes distribute their lives differently. And yet, uh, one has to make allowances for it. We make, it, we make allowances for pregnancy and uh, um, uh, stopping uh, activities for a while uh, due to uh, pregnancy and the birth of kids. And like this, uh, I believe that we have to make sure that we offer equal opportunity to women to rise within the organization. And I have encouraged uh, members of my department to occupy the positions of chief of division. Uh, uh, and we have several women who occupy positions as such uh, as chiefs of division, uh, both at the hospital level or as uh, McGill directors of a university division. Um, at the same time, I, as I said, I believe that we are all equal. And so I believe in diversity and I believe in inclusiveness. And uh, this is a mantra here at McGill uh, and I endorse it and I encourage it and I think we have to support it. And unfortunately, we live in a very difficult world where we see regularly that uh, uh, 
equity, diversity, and inclusiveness are not respected. And so we should make uh, an extra effort mm -hmm. to make sure that they prevail in our environment and elsewhere as much as we can. And uh, in this difficult world, it may be very difficult to achieve this, but we have to strive and attempt to uh, somehow um, extend this respect for EDI that we have elsewhere. And, and we, like, just to, to finish our uh, chat with you, Ernesto, like, you know that COVID has caused, as you mentioned, like, uh, you didn't go to conferences and had to isolate and we had, like, lab closures. I don't know exactly, like, how things were here in Montreal, but at least in the UK, I think, like, everywhere in the world, like, we had major disruptions. And that was... Uh, is, is still is causing like a huge effect in the career of many career progress of many ECRs. Uh, so do you have any ideas of what we as a community can do to support the junior researchers uh, in order for them to uh, acquire that lost time uh, back? Well, you know, we're all catching up at different levels. Uh, and I, I think that we have to catch up at that level. We have tried, uh, at least in my lab, to uh, continue working uh, despite uh, obstacles and uh, difficulties. Some of the experiments could not be carried out. They were delayed. Um, the uh, training of some of the uh, PhD students was uh, lengthened, uh, delayed, but one of them graduated last week, another one today submitted his PhD thesis and the other one is finishing his experiments. So, you know, uh, in my lab at least, we've done our best uh, to uh, move forward. On the other hand, I was part of a very large um, multi-center trial I was in the steering committee. It was a study that uh, brought to fruition an idea that I've had for 30 years and that uh, is a lot based on our work on rats and mice. And we couldn't recruit any patients, wow. none at all, because as we were recruiting our first patients for this study, the government declared that only COVID-related research could be carried out in humans. And uh, by the time we were ready to restart, the, the study was complete, uh, the recruitment was completed. Actually, the study was locked today. But uh, so, you know, I myself have suffered. Uh, we have all suffered and there is a lot of suffering, grief, uh, mental health problems, problems in development of children, uh, language development, perhaps due to mask usage. Uh, so many aspects of life have been distorted, altered, uh, have suffered because of these two, more than two years of uh, COVID-19. Um, and we're going to continue suffering from it. 
okay. as it kind of uh, will continue with little wavelets uh, or bigger waves uh, and, and different measures uh, will have to be taken. I myself intend to continue wearing a mask for quite a while, even if there are no mask mandates. And uh, I have to say that, uh, you know, the long COVID that uh, uh, many of us are investigating and uh, having to care for, uh, all of this affects every area of society. There's not an aspect of society that is not affected. And so it's inevitable that early career investigators, uh, early career members of our departments, all have suffered in one way or another. Um, pressure, tension, stress, uh, you name it, uh, it's been there. And how it will affect us and our, our younger colleagues, we don't yet know what the final consequences of these two years will be. And there's no doubt that there will be consequences. And so we have to be proactive. We have to um, be cognizant of the fact that indeed, um, this is the case that this has, has, has had a huge impact uh, on everyone, including our early career uh, uh, scientists and, and uh, uh, young colleagues. And so we have to be supportive uh, and uh, we have to uh, find a way to uh, help them succeed. Another uh, way of uh, manifesting the fact that mentorship will have to take place, and very importantly so, in order for these individuals to achieve their goals. And uh, it may be that some of those goals will be slightly delayed, that they will deviate a little bit from the original goals. But I think that, you know, humans are very adaptable. And I have the hope that despite uh, the, the huge upheaval in society across the world um, that has occurred over the last two years, we will overcome, we will return to a normal life, and we will be able to help those who have been delayed in any way in their development, be it children or early career scientists. And I think that we have to pay special attention to those, all those early people, early career, children, uh, who may have been at critical times of their development, be it biological, psychological, or scientific, intellectual, or medical, or in any other profession. Mm -hmm. uh, and that we will have to uh, not only pay attention, but also develop. And, and that cannot be just uh, said in the spur of the moment, but develop the, the tools and the approaches that will make sure that they will achieve uh, their goal, that they will achieve the development that they deserve 
and that they wish for and that they have envisioned uh, for their careers. Um, I don't know how, but I can say that uh, we have always responded to challenges uh, more or less successfully. And so we will respond to this challenge again, and I hope it will be successful, but it will require effort, it will require study, it will require research into the mechanisms that have taken us where we are today and have taken these particular individuals to the place where they are today so that uh, uh, we can ensure that they will achieve uh, their objectives, their goals, because it's all about that. It's about people having the gratification of achievement and, uh, uh, and being able to give back. Again, to be able to give back, you have to get somewhere. And so we want them to be able to give back and to give back, they have to get to where they want to go. Absolutely, yeah. No, thank you, thank you so much, Ernesto. Uh, this has been a delightful interview. I shared many of your opinions, and it was really lovely to get to know a little bit better, um, not just the scientists, but also your views on uh, mentoring and your own career path. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much for the opportunity. I enjoyed it very much as well. Thank you for listening to our interview. If you'd like more tips on mentoring, subscribe to our podcast for more interviews with senior and emerging leaders. Stay safe, open-minded and kind.